When I was just eight years old, I had to testify in court against my paternal grandfather for sexual assault. I remember walking through the courtroom to the witness box and seeing my grandpa's cowboy hat on the table where he sat with his two high-powered attorneys. There was the clock on the wall that I stared at while I answered questions that no eight-year-old should ever have to answer. I still recall the disappointing outcome of him being found not guilty. My name is Kelly Wallace. I am a writer and sexual assault survivor. I've undergone decades of therapy to overcome what I experienced, and writing is a part of my healing process. In this podcast, we will talk with other writers who have also overcome sexual violence. Their stories are often neglected, but to me, they are an inspiration, and I'm excited to be able to share them with you. Welcome to Recognize Our Power. The topics we are discussing are sensitive and do come with a trigger warning. Please take care of yourself. If you are in need of resources, please visit our website, www.recognizeourpower.com, and click on the resources page. It is on an accident that there is so little social awareness about incest. There have been large social movements like the False Memory Foundation in the 80s or a Freudian cover-up in the early 20th century that very intentionally suppressed the voices of childhood sexual abuse survivors, especially incest survivors. Welcome to the Recognize Our Power podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Wallace. Thank you for listening and subscribing. I'm grateful to be speaking to our guest today, Josephine A. Lauren. She is a queer neurodivergent author and activist, as well as the community organizer of Incest Aware. She shares her story of surviving childhood incest and illness to raise awareness and support solutions for prevention, intervention, recovery, and justice. Her story has been published in outlets like Ms. Magazine, Yes, America, Spirituality and Health, and Elite Daily. You can review her full portfolio at www.josephinelauren.com and find her at Josephine Lauren on all social media platforms. So welcome, Josephine. Can you share for our listeners just a little bit about your growing up years? I can. You know, I grew up in a, in, a, in a family system that was very rooted in white supremacist patriarchy. So I was raised in a very conservative Catholic church, Catholic family that was very influenced by Opus Dei Catholicism, which is kind of pre-Vatican II, very hmm. conservative, Latin mass. Women hmm. uh, are subservient to their husbands. And the teachings that were often taught within my family system, at least, was that women were responsible for men's sexuality. Mm. So there was a strong culture of adultism as well as sexism that men made the money and women um, were the were the domestic caregivers. 
Uh, men were in control and women were subservient. Mm. And that also passed down to children. So it was kind of that you are seen, you're not heard. And I belonged to my father and was very much responsible for uh, a reflection of him. Um, mm. He certainly reflects behavioral narcissism. There was a lot of codependency. So like no kind of ability for, for my mother to leave and and uh, and certainly financial codependency as well. And so I grew up trapped, essentially, in this system that told me that I have no voice, that uh, men's sexuality is my fault, and that essentially my my body could be exploited for the benefit of others. One of the biggest issues of it is that it's normalized. I didn't know that was a problem. I, my body really hated where I grew up. like i i I never really understood. The, the gender roles that were being taught to me. It didn't make sense. I was very queer as a child. I had three brothers and didn't understand why my body was different or why I had to dress different than them or why I wasn't as free as they were or why I had mm. to cover up my body when they didn't. I was very confused by the dynamics, the gender dynamics I, I was being raised in. And I fought all the time. Like I was constantly advocating for myself at a young age, but I was never taught how to critically think. I was taught how to, what to think, not how to think. And so mm -hmm. there was no alternative in my mind. There was just, I don't like this way of living. I have to live this way. And it wasn't until college that I started studying feminism and liberation theology and started really learning the language of oppression through communities outside of the community I was raised in um, that I really began to, to deconstruct the family system I was raised in, understand that it is not normal, and then eventually kind of find my way, set boundaries around it and find my way out of it. And then when the incest came back, or when the incest memories returned, that was like my heartbreak. I really tried to engage with my family around it. And it was very clear to me that the expectation was to forgive mm -hmm. and, and to move on without any assurance that the abuse would stop, the next generation would be safe. Um, or that the, the kind of patriarchal, supremacist, exploitative dynamics would end, that I just needed to do what I was supposed to do as a woman, which was to be silent and submit. Um, mm. so, I, so I liberated myself, as I think we all should, from these systems. And now I'm living on the other side of it and still struggling in, in, because the system isn't just my family system, it's the economic system and the social system that still really permeates a lot of these patterns, um, still just managing barriers as we all are. Yes. So do you feel comfortable talking about what life was like after? Did you report to the police? Did you do anything along those lines? Yeah. So at 24, I resurfaced the memories of incest abuse and immediately got psychological support. Um, eventually, my ability to engage more healing modalities through income advancements, et cetera, became available. And so at, at one time was working with maybe 10 physicians at the same time. Oh, wow. Trying to heal the neurological, physiological, psychological, and spiritual complexities of this particular issue. Also while just managing a job and trying to earn a living, right? <laughs> uh, and yeah. really wanting a normal life. Like I was, I grieved so much at that time because I was in my early 20s. Most of my friends were having fun, going to parties, meeting their loves, getting married, building careers, eventually buying houses. And I was just like surviving, trying to 
pay for my medical bills mostly out of pocket, right? So it kind of like the medical system and how expensive mental health was at the time really kept me in in a cycle of financial insecurity, which was really hard. And eventually felt that I had the confidence to report. As we know, the criminal justice system is not on the side of survivors and that law enforcement can be re-traumatizing the process of, of reporting and engaging the criminal justice system. And so I needed to make sure I had enough internal strength before I engaged that process. I did eventually engage the process and it was a a complete mess. I was living in the, in the, in Northern California at the time and called my local police precinct. And they told me I had to drive to Southern California where the abuse happened but because I, it was within my family system, the abuse happened in lots of places because we traveled, right? Mm. And I had, more, I had multiple people who harmed me. And so when, whenever we'd travel to other families' homes, um, the harm would happen there too. Mm. So I, I did travel back to Southern California, went to the local police precinct in my childhood neighborhood, showed up at the door, uh, said, hey, I'm a victim of incest as a, as a child, and I'd like to report. And the women looked at me like I was insane and said, aren't there mm. statute of limitations or something? You can't even do that. So I had driven mm. miles and miles because I was told I had to. I show up and they deny my ability to report. So I, I demand I demand the ability to report. And I, yes. I just, I tear up and I just said like, I am here. I just drove all this way. I was told I could report my story. I am here to report. I would like a female police officer right now. (laughs) Mm. And they rolled their eyes and said, it'll be an hour. And so I sat and waited. The police officer was lovely. By the time I reported, she knew what she was doing. She was very sensitive, uh, gave me my case number. I walked out the door. I never, never heard back. There was no follow-up. Holy cow. So years later, I like built up the courage to call back and just said, hey, here's my case number. Can you please update me on my case? And they said to me, nothing has been updated on your case, but you just have to trust that law enforcement did their job. And that was such an almost hilariously offensive thing to say to an incest survivor when I was raised in a family that did not do their job. Like not only did they not do their job, but they they intentionally harmed me repeatedly. Mm-hmm. Um, a medical system that was not actively doing their job in supporting me, an economic system that was not doing their job. And then I was just supposed to trust that law enforcement somehow was on my side. Right. They did also not to do their job. So institutional betrayal is something that incest survivors especially suffer from, right? That the, that the system of family, the criminal justice system, the medical system, a variety of systems that are built to support us fail us time and time again. And that has been so re-traumatizing. I can't even explain to you. <laughs> no, I, I understand. My, our stories are a little different in the sense that I reported when I was a child and the system was set up against me as a child because my father was an attorney in in the same county where my uh, he was a district attorney where the same in the same county where my um, grandfather was living and the whole the whole system screwed me because there was a vast cover up and so I I totally sympathize with your experience with institutions not protecting us as survivors. 
I know you've talked a little bit about some of the ways that that you have healed. Um, how has writing as a tool helped you to heal through this process? I, when I was eight years old, I ran to my mother and was like, mom, I figured out what I want to be when I grow up. And she just kind of <laughs> rolled her eyes, you know, and was like, what's that? <laughs> and I said, I want to be a writer. And, and then, you know, life happened and I chose to pursue other paths. But it, when hashtag me Too went viral in 2017, that desire just kind of burst out of my body. And so I just had this really strong sense of global solidarity all of the sudden the isolation in me broke and just said mm -hmm. my story is so much bigger than me and i need to go public with it simultaneously i was noticing that incest was completely left out of the media's representation of the issue so totally we talked about again you know government uh, sexual violence within government within sports within business within schools within Hollywood, but we never talked about intrafamilial sexual violence or incest. And mm -hmm. it was so hurtful to me because children are the most vulnerable within their homes. We know from the from statistics in the Department of Justice that children are most often abused by people they know. And that if a family member has access to you all the time, the chances of you being raped or molested serially or repeatedly are significantly higher. And so the place where people are most vulnerable is in the home, and yet this mm -hmm. was totally ignored. And so I felt so strongly that I needed to start sharing my story to help raise awareness of this issue and so started blogging, which was a great place to start. One, because it's self-published. You have total control over what you say. And two, because the only people who read it were my network. <laughs> and my <laughs> network were very safe people. And then slowly, as I kind of built my courage, but also, you know, just published more and built my portfolio, was able to connect with other survivors, publish their, their stories and their pieces, and then publish on major platforms like Ms. Magazine and America and Elite Daily and Yes. And that was very exciting. And now I'm writing a memoir, which is wonderful and very challenging. I think you're writing your book too. Is that right? I just completed it. <gasps> Congratulations. Thanks. Going on submission next week. <laughs> Great. <laughs> yeah. So what has, what has working on your memoir been like for you? It's been a wave. I... I only really have the capacity to write it when I don't have anything else to do. And so I am a freelance entrepreneur. I do copy and content writing for businesses, but I can't, I don't have enough neurological energy or brain mm -hmm. energy, brain space to work on client projects and the memoir at the same time. It kind of takes all of me and I'm sure you can relate the like emotional yes. intensity, the level of focus you need. I really need a container for it. So what I've been doing is like working a few months and then writing a few months of my memoir and then working a few months and writing a few months. And, and so it's, it's when I'm writing it, it's both beautiful, how natural it feels. It's also so complex and layered as I'm sure you, you can imagine and, or you understand from your lived experience because there's so much 
And I'm really trying to integrate both my personal story with systemic betrayal and solutions. Mm -hmm. Like, how do we fix Mm -hmm. this? And so just kind of weaving together all those parts is is complex. And I'm still learning to hold the complexity in my life and in my body without disassociating. Uh, Yes. And then trying to not just write it, but write it well, write it in a way that's appealing and write it in a way that is receivable, digestible, and people who don't have this experience will be interested in it, or people who do will want to read it. Uh, The craft of writing is also something I'm learning. So it's like I'm doing the work and learning how to do the work all at the same time. Yes, (laughs) yes, yes, yes. So are you a member of like a writing community, like a a writing group where you workshop your pages at all? Or how are you doing it all by yourself? What's that process been like? I've explored a lot of different types of writing groups. So I was in a a writing group with Laura Davis, actually, who's the Mm -hmm. author of The Courage to Heal. Um, One of the- We just interviewed her. (laughs) Oh, great. Yeah. She's wonderful. So I did her summer writing workshop last year and learned a lot. It was kind of my first time sharing publicly. I feel very safe writing and publishing because it's behind the screen, but sharing my writing with people, even if it's just on Zoom or sharing it in public or public speaking is much harder for my nervous system. Um, So it was good kind of exposure therapy to slow up, show up (laughs) slowly and let people read my writing and give me feedback. Um, And then I'm taking a class currently at Sarah Lawrence with Vanessa Friedman um, that's called You Are Your Own Expert, I think, uh, which is, a, it's just a, it's another writing, you know, 10, 10 week writing course. Um, and that's been wonderful to, to get people to read it. I Great. just had my piece. Uh, I, I, I had them workshop two parts of my memoir, the opening, and then the part where I retrieve my memories. And mm. so they just workshopped that yesterday and I was like in tears sharing it right because it's like the most intense part of the story and I was so afraid that it would be rejected or they'd be like it's too much and they were it was so well received and it was so celebrated and so that was really healing yeah yeah and then I'm you know I have friends and people I trust you know give me feedback and read it so that I make sure that I'm making sense and I hold myself accountable to making this bigger than just about my story (laughs) yes Exactly, exactly. So I know you mentioned incest aware. Can you is that a can you tell us a little bit about that? Is it a nonprofit? What's what's the story? Yeah, so there's a really wonderful community on Facebook called Sexual Assault Advocacy Network, S-A-A-N. They call themselves SAN. And it was founded by a wonderful incest survivor named Susanna Saza. And she Um, basically just wanted to gather everyone who's doing sexual assault advocacy together and to support each other. So she started this, this network. There's like thousands of people in it now. And then noticed, like often we do, that the sexual assault advocacy network really doesn't do much of anything for incest survivors, that we are neglected often within the community, or we're kind of put under the childhood sexual abuse umbrella, but not like the complexity of being abused by a family member specifically and the Mm -hmm. challenges of identity or disclosure and finding support if family abandons you is a unique problem um, that isn't often addressed. And so she decided that she wanted to do a more incest-focused project and started Hmm. reaching out to anyone who has used the word incest positively (laughs) on the internet, which isn't sadly, a lot of people. Um, yeah. 
So found me from, from my writing. There are, you know, a handful of folks who are doing research and or have support organizations for incest survivors specifically, and really founded Incest Aware as this organization for preventative care, kind of a digital resource to help people be better educated, understand the issue, and just build social awareness. Great. Yeah, she invited me to join her, and I helped her build the organization. And now we're really looking to be kind of a coalition of support services. So if anyone finds our website, they can find direct services and link out to a bunch of other folks and organizations doing work so that people know where to go. Because I think there's a lot of confusion, one, around incest in general, uh, and two, on how, how do you find support. So we just want to help make that make that really clear. You're listening to Recognize Our Power. I'm Kelly Wallace. I'm talking with Josephine A. Lauren. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Kelly Wallace, and this is Recognize Our Power. I'm talking with Josephine A. Lauren. So what advice would you give to someone who wants to dive in and start exploring their own sexual assault through through writing? Yeah, I would advise them first and foremost to understand, are you writing to heal or are you writing to publish? Because those mm. are very different things. If you're writing to heal, there are so many wonderful workshops out there. As an incest survivor, I provide workshops. Donna Jensen provides workshops. Uh, she's another great survivor that you can look up. But writing to heal is a very different process. Writing to publish is a, is requires more steps. <laughs> so yes. you really have to think about defamation law. Uh, you have to think about where you want to publish. You have to think about the audience you're publishing to. You really have to have kind of a message um, or a, or like a core thought that you're looking to share. Often you need to integrate research. So there's kind of this like A narrative, which is your story with the B narrative, which is the macro story and or research data, et cetera, that equals the C narrative, which is what you're writing. So kind of decide your path. And it could be both. Or it could be one or the other, but it's good to kind of know what you want to get out of it before you begin. Yes, definitely. I love that explanation of the personal narrative, the the macro. That's, yeah. Yeah, that's – I've never heard it described that way. That's completely like what it is if you're if you're writing for publishing and not in a, in a healing, healing way. So what is life like for you now? Oh, it's interesting. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, on one hand, I feel deeply grateful for my life. I have rebuilt a family system that is unconditionally supportive of me, that can listen to me talk about incest all the time, because it is not just my story, but it now is my work. And I, I, I'm a nomad, so I get to kind of jump around and live in all these beautiful places, which is really a gift I love that I'm devoting my life to this craft of writing. And I love that I, I wouldn't say I necessarily 
have the foundation to do that, but I take a lot of risk to do that because it's really important to me. Um, (laughs) So yeah, the, the craft is a gift to me. It is also a real, a real challenge because of the story I'm trying to tell in a social system that is still so resistant to wanting to hear it Mm -hmm. and trying to make, you know, keep yourself financially stable as a writer is really hard. And so both of those things are challenging Managing a chronic disability is challenging. Mm-hmm. So my mental health, you know, my my brain is, developmental trauma has long-term consequences for some of us. And it certainly did for me. And so I have a, a brain that really struggles to function and a body that kind of feels like it's just being dragged around. <laughs> uh, so I do my best, you know, to like ask for support in the ways I need it and to support myself in the ways I need it. And to just pace myself through my days and trust that things will be okay, but it's not easy. Yes, yes. I think you you hit upon something that is so important is that when the Me Too movement broke, there was not a lot of attention given to incest stories or child sexual abuse stories, period, point blank. Mm-hmm. So when, when you talked specifically about some of the barriers that you face as a writer, how do you get around that? How do you explain to people that your story is is important and it needs to be out there? Great question. There's a great book written by Stacey Abrams called Lead from the Outside. And it talks about the realities of being a part of from a historically marginalized population. In her case, she's talking about yes. um, the challenges as, as a Black woman. Right. But incest survivors are historically marginalized population and have been very intentionally systemically oppressed. Like it is not an accident that there is so little social awareness about incest. There have been large social movements like the False Memory Foundation in the 80s or uh, the Freudian cover-up in in the early 20th century that that very intentionally suppressed uh, the voices of childhood sexual abuse survivors, especially incest survivors. So she has this wonderful, wonderful book that that's very honest about just expect yourself to work so much harder than everybody else. Yeah. And just accept it. Because if you let yourself kind of sit and wallow in that, it's just going to distract you. So I see that happening. I see my friends pitching and writing and landing a lot easier than I do. And that is frustrating. That is also the reality. And I am choosing to do this work. And so I am taking on that burden. Yes. I also need help taking on that burden. And so community Mm -hmm. support is really important. I don't need to do this alone. I have people I can call and vent about that all the time with. And I also have people who are, at this point, I'm very grateful to have people who are volunteering their time to help me pitch so I don't have to take on the burden by myself. Yes. Because it is very hard to be told no or not be set, not be told anything, which is most yeah. <laughs> often the response when you pitch over and over and over again, especially when it's such a personal subject. It can feel re-traumatizing to be neglected and ignored that many times. Yes. So there is a sense of acceptance. There also is a sense of building your community support to make sure you have the emotional resilience to keep going. And that is something that's so important that I think we don't talk about enough as writers is it's not mm-hmm. just about like mastering how to write a pitch email or like yeah. making sure you stay consistent. It's like really holding the emotional space for yourself to go through those ups and downs and say, I'm showing up every day anyway. And that's hard. <laughs> yes. So having accountability people in your life who can say, hey, how are you showing up today? Like, 
hey, I know you feel bad today. Like maybe you need to take a break and go for a walk. Like how do you pace yourself? Yeah. How do you take care of yourself? Focusing on the work and focusing on your self-care within a community context, like all these things can be really great ways to ensure that you are succeeding at your own time in your own pace and managing the barriers as you go, you know? Yes, exactly. Exactly. How I I know for myself, when I had to write the really, the trauma scenes, I had to take breaks. I had to sometimes go great amounts of time without working on that material. And I read my pages aloud to my therapist, to my writing group. What is your routine when it comes to having to to sift through that material? I love that question. And I think it's important that every writer finds their body's permission. Mm-hmm. So I will not write without my body's permission. Mm. And that means that I don't write consistently. That means that my memoir is taking me years to write. Yeah. But the harm that causes when I write, when I override my body's no is not worth it to me. And so that is one of the reasons that I let myself wave through the writing process that I take months on and months off because I need my body's yes in order to move through the book, in order to move through the writing. Yeah. I've also found a cadence in my writing that took me a while to find, but that is very poetic. It's very lyrical. And that's nice. It feels like it flows a little more. Mm -hmm. So I don't sit very long or stay very long in really intense scenes as much as I let myself kind of flow through them. And because I recovered the memories as an adult, they're already fluid in that way. Mm -hmm. So my body will certainly have constant reactivity as a survivor. Yeah. But there is a space I can find in my body where it offers me that flow. And that's when I know I can say yes to the writing because it's saying yes to me. And that's only offered to me sometimes. So I make sure that I am productive (laughs) during those times. (laughs) (laughs) Writing as a survivor is a complex thing. (laughs) It's very complex. I, I had someone describe it as like, you know, as an adult, you're just survivor you're left with basically a puddle of anxiety. I mean, that's the way I have PTSD, but the way it manifests for myself is just a puddle of anxiety. And it's like yep. a constant hand on my back pushing me to go, go, go. And so for myself, I have to, I have to dial it down yeah. a lot. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. I have almost the opposite response. I'm, I would say I'm more like hypoactive. Mm. So I want to just like do nothing all the time. My body's like, you're not safe. Don't get out of bed. Yeah. Like, don't move. Just stay here. But if I immobile, then I'm very jittery and anxious and I can't relax. So yeah. for me, it, it's kind of pacing myself through a day where it's like, I'm going to do a little work or I'm going to go for a walk or I, I have like, these like spurts of activity and then I rest in between them. Um, and that's how I manage. <laughs> that's how I manage the work. Hello. <laughs> Sorry, that's Starboy. Okay. He likes to be on camera. <laughs> uh, my cat just walked across <laughs> the interview here. <laughs> I wish I had that more of a hypo rather than hyper. 
<laughs> oh, it's, I honestly, I, it's like, you know, the grass is always greener, but the nice thing about being hyperactive is it's supported by our culture and our economy, right? Yeah. Like this kind of drive, whereas like I've struggled a lot because of depression and lack of energy. It's been hard for me to, you know, financially support myself, keep a job, yeah. like all those things, because I can't get out. It's hard for me to stay consistent in my routines and to trust myself to do so. Yeah. So that adds extra struggle, but I think they're just both hard on, in different yes, ways. There's, yeah, it's, it's not great on, on either count. So yes, definitely. Yeah. So you're working on your memoir. What's next for you? Yeah, I really want to get it published. <laughs> so I, <laughs> well, I want to traditionally publish. That is my goal. Yes. Um, so I am, I pitched a bunch of agents at the end of last month and I'm really proud of myself and waiting to hear back from them. So the goal would be to secure an agent and then secure a publisher, get the book published. Are you aware of what's happening in France around incest abuse? I don't think I, no, I'm not. Maybe, maybe. So in 2021, a book was written called La Familia Grande, and it was about incest, and it inspired the French government to create a coalition devoted to incest and childhood sexual abuse. Oh. And they interviewed 15,000 survivors and a number of professionals. They traveled all around the country for these interviews and came up with this report of systemic solutions. Mm. It is in, in many ways very well done. I learned so much from the report. The testimonies themselves are beautiful. I mean, harrowing but as a survivor because we're so isolated it was so beautiful to read how like how much solidarity or how many similarities and how much the words of the people who gave testimony were words that I have yet to speak that opened so much up in me mm -hmm. so I have access to that document and I'm happy to send it to you incest aware translated it into English oh awesome but uh, I would really love to see writing instigate a similar process in the United States. So whether that's my book yes. or your book or whoever else's book, I don't really care. <laughs> what I care about <laughs> is that we get funding to come up with evidence that's rooted in data so that we can actually secure funding and really start shifting systems and building community support models for incest survivors. So if my That's book can completely, we need that so desperately yeah. in the United States because it is a huge problem and no one wants to talk about it. That would be, yeah, there's no, yeah, there's no structure. Victims don't get access to services. There's no funding. There's no money. I mean, it's just the hands, the hand that is dealt to incest survivors is just a, it's a total atrocity. Well, thank you so much for that. I look forward to reading that. And thank you so much for your time today. Where can people find you? Yeah, my website is josephineann.com, and with an E. I'm going to be starting a Substack. That's my 2023 goal as well, is to start a Substack blog. So look for that. Uh, it'll be focused on activism, sexual violence, incest, but really having kind of an inspiring tone that airs even on the side of, of humor to help hold the <laughs> severity of the subject. 
And I'm really looking to build community this year. So please feel free to reach out. Anyone who is a survivor or a supporter or who is doing research or is an organization that supports survivors or is an organization that doesn't support survivors that wants to support survivors. Mm. We have such good networks of support, right? Between the school system and medical systems and the Rape Crisis Network, we just need people to learn about the issue and commit to helping prevent it, create safe systems of intervention, support recovery, and really believe in in an anti-violent transformative justice model. So there's so much work to be done, and I think there's so many opportunities to do it, and I'm just really excited to connect with people who are passionate about the work. Thank you so much. Wow, what a great conversation, and thank you so much for your time today. I, I really appreciate it. I'll link in the show notes to all of your socials and website. And to find out more about our podcast, please follow us on Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram, or visit our website, www.recognizeourpower.com. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends. If you have an extra few seconds, please leave us a review to help the algorithm. I'd like to thank my guest today, Josephine A. Lauren. Be sure to check out our show notes and website, www.recognizeourpower.com. Follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. I'm your host, Kelly Wallace. This podcast is produced by Three Wire Creative.